Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. It began long ago. Two young boys in an American town riding their bikes to school and Little League practice. Over the years, the boys became fast friends, united in their love for stories where things would go horribly wrong. Pour yourself a strong beverage and buckle up. You're in the shallow end with Schnebley and Toth. It's always cool, JG, when you have fans of the podcast who take the time to tell you how much they dig the pod. And a few months ago, maybe April, uh, a gentleman named Steve Cubine uh, was over visiting Nan and me. Uh, we were uh, with uh, another couple friend. We were celebrating uh, Steve's recent wedding uh, to his partner. They had been together for 20-something years, wow. and they decided to tie the, tie the knot. That's great. And so we had them over for champagne and, and cake and, you know, little nut cups or something. And <laughs> uh, Toward the end of the afternoon, he said, by the way, I just got to tell you, I love the shallow end so much. You guys have such great rapport and such great stories and uh steve has had a blog for years called from beneath the hollywood sign and he said you know it'd be great is someday i would love to be able to turn that blog into a into a podcast and before he even really even finished the sentence (laughs) nancy said i'll do it with you (laughs) and hence was born something that uh JG and I have been mentioning on and off for the past, I guess, couple of months now, which is the third podcast under the Box of Oddities umbrella, which will be debuting October 16th. Yes. Called From Beneath the Hollywood Sign with Steve Cubine and Nan McNamara. Now, uh, Steve has, um, has he won an Emmy or he's worked on Emmy award winning shows, right? Correct. Yeah. So, uh, so he's he's a guy who knows what he's talking about when it comes to he is, Hollywood. He is one of those. Uh, it, it has an almost savant like knowledge of Hollywood, and his his emphasis has always been his his fascination has always been more on what I think is often called the golden age mm-hmm. of Hollywood, the thirties, forties, fifties, sometimes the sixties, um, and. And also a, a little gritty at times, not necessarily the, um, you know, the the Wizard of Oz right. over the rainbow isn't everything cheery. Uh, more uh, more often what, what could be described as maybe the, 
the seamy underbelly. Uh, that was the term I the, was going to use. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a great deal of scandal during the golden age of Hollywood. There were murders that were covered up by the studios and all kinds of betrayal. It, it, it's really a fascinating period. Um, I'm particularly interested in, in the silent era because they were just kind of finding their way in this new um, medium. And I know Steve is an expert on all of this stuff. And and Nan gives a great perspective because she's a, a successful working actress in Hollywood today. You've probably seen her many times on a lot of major motion pictures and, and, and television shows and didn't even know that, that that's who that was. So the two of them together, uh, it's a really nice balance and, 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 a, and a very interesting podcast. I, I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, it's really something special. Uh, they have already recorded uh, five of them that are going to drop on the 16th. And I got to tell you, they're really, uh, it, it sounds to me like they have been doing this for years because they are, they actually, I mean, not, not, to, not to be weird about it, but they remind me a little of you and me in terms of finishing each other's sentences oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and kind of knowing where the other person, person is going, going before, before they, they yeah. yeah, they're just fascinating um, stories, many of which I had, most of which I had never even heard before. And uh, I really think people are going to dig it. So, And he literally lives beneath the Hollywood sign. His, yes, his house yes. Or, not not in not in a little hut, but no. but his house looks looks up the street uh, at the Hollywood sign, and that part of Hollywood. In fact, they do an entire podcast on the history of things that happened just in his neighborhood. Um, some some very funny, some very tragic, uh, but it's 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 really a, a fascinating podcast. And when you and I joked last time about how uh, we wouldn't be surprised if it actually surpasses both box and shallow end in terms of popularity, that that would be that would be fine with us. Yeah, no, we could retire early. I think that uh, there's a very strong likelihood that uh, it's going to be wildly successful. It's very well produced. It's well researched. Um, It's it's funny. It's interesting. And um, I think I think it's going to do really, really well. I'm really excited for the rollout October 16th. And we'll give you more details the closer we get to the uh, launch date. In the meantime. So tell tell your friends. Yeah, tell your friends or t- tell your enemies if, if you so. Tell your enemies. Yeah, tell, tell anyone you can find. Yep. It's all one big party. I didn't ask you before we started who's uh, who's going first. I think it's your turn, buddy. Okay. All right. I mentioned to JG before we started uh, rolling the big reel-to-reel recorder that we use here in... <laughs> the Ampex. In uh, mm-hmm. the Ampex reel-to-reel recorder that we use here at Shallow End Studios, that when I came across this story, I thought it was familiar, and I'm wondering if JG actually did this years ago on Box. One of the reasons that I love this story is that it ties into Tucson, Arizona, where JG and I met and work together. Right. Um, but this is this one is this this is a, a wild ride. It involves a couple who lived in lived in Cliff, New Mexico, which is a very very small town in New Mexico. Their names were Jerry and Rita Alter, 
and they were viewed by their friends and family as kind of harmless eccentrics. They were known for loving exotic travel. They went all over the place and they would come back. Uh, this is pre, you know, digital camera days right. and they would bore their neighbors with the, <laughs> you got to come over for dinner and then I'll show you. I've got a two hour slideshow yeah. of our, of our trip to South America or, or wherever. Jerry had been a uh, jazz musician, commercially unsuccessful artist. He wanted to be a, an artist, a, a painter, but uh, uh, he was an unpublished author. He was a retired New York City public school teacher. Rita, his wife, had a career as a speech pathologist. Um, they had a lot of interesting, uh, interesting might be kind, art around their home <laughs> in Cliff, New Mexico. Some of Jerry's paintings and their souvenirs from, you know, traveling around the world. But they also had a secret that nobody knew, and I guess that's redundant because that's why it's called a secret. They were very accomplished art thieves. Oh. <laughs> what? What? Well, that fact came to light back in 2017. This is after Rita passed away at age 81. So that's six years ago. Jerry had actually died five years before in 2012 when he was 81. So they end up leaving this home filled with all kinds of stuff, uh, empty. I mean, that is to say unoccupied. Now, in the process of, of having a nephew a guy named Ron Roseman, who was the executor of their estate, he went through the house and saw all kinds of crap all over the place, including paintings and artwork and sculptures and knickknacks and all, and all kinds of stuff. But he, understandably, is a little bit overwhelmed going through this stuff. And like you or me, thinks, I don't really know what to look for. Is mm. something here valuable? Is it not? So he asks this guy who owned a store called Manzanita Ridge Furniture Antiques in Silver City, New Mexico. His name was David Van Auker. And he says, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you go through this house? Because I don't know what I'm looking for. I don't know if something's worth anything or not. So David Van Auker says, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll go through it. And, um, and so he does. And he ends up calling Ron Roseman, the, you know, the Rita's nephew, who was the executor of the state. And he says, yeah, nothing great except for one thing. Because uh, Jerry had been uh, uh, an amateur amateur artist himself, the, the husband, he had painted a lot of paintings that Mr. Van Auker said were so bad, <laughs> I just left them behind. Yeah, just put them right in the dumpster. So he took, uh, Van Auker took, and, and this is with, you know, permission. This is actually what, what he had been paid to do. He takes a lamp and a single vase and that painting that had been in a gold picture frame behind a bedroom door. Hmm. So the only person who ever saw this painting in the house were the couple who owned it because it was hanging in this kind of gaudy gold leaf frame next to their bedroom door. 
So Van Ocker looks at the painting and thinks, boy, that that somehow doesn't fit. This looks like it's it doesn't belong in this house because this looks like it's it's a real painting. <laughs> and indeed it was. So he said, my business partner and I owned a vacation rental in the mountains. I thought the painting would be good to put there. Well, this piece turned out to be a painting called Woman Ochre. And it might have been relegated to a corner of that vacation property. But a sharp-eyed artist, a guy named James Quitara, comes into the store and he recognizes that this painting is a masterpiece. And he says, I'll give you $200,000 for it. And assuming that this artist was joking, Van Auker, the guy who owned the antique store, says, sold. But this is what's impressive to me, because this artist, James Quitara, knew what he was looking at. And he says, no, I'm serious. Van Auker, the store owner, says, you know, I would have sold it to you for like $400, $450. It would have been yours. But Quitara, the artist, was really honest and said, you really shouldn't be selling this. You should you should investigate this. I, I think this is this is something significant. So sure enough, Van Auker, the store owner, goes to Google and quickly finds an article from the Arizona Republic, the, the paper of record in the state of Arizona, and finds a story about the theft of this painting. And it turns out that back in 1985, the day after Thanksgiving, a man and a woman enter this small museum. This is the University of Arizona Art Museum on the campus of the U of A. Go Wildcats. And it's right after the museum opens. And the woman um, finds a way to distract a security guard. And the man, the husband, goes up the stairs. Now, keep in mind, for uh, back in 1985, there were no security cameras in this part of the museum, which by today's standards is, of course, just amazing to me because I feel like there are security cameras virtually all over the United States of America, if not the world. But back then, they didn't have this. So the security guard is going up the staircase to where the husband has, has you know, sprinted up the stairs and the wife distracts the security guard. What the guard doesn't realize is the man goes up to the gallery, goes up to the painting, pulls out a, uh, a knife, slices the painting oh, out of the frame. Okay. okay. Rolls it up, puts it in his jacket, and comes down the stairs and kind of, I don't know, winks or gives some signal to his wife like, got it, time for us to go. And they split, and a minute or two later, the security guard goes up the stairs to the second floor and is walking around looking and sees an empty space where this painting, Woman Ochre, had been hanging when the museum opened in the morning. I wonder what made them target that specific painting. Was it opportunity it's a, it's or a, is it was it? It's a fascinating question. And I, I don't know because I have I have read so many stories about this and maybe I just missed it. 
but no story that I read talked about how they chose that as as the object they wanted to to steal. It's it, it's pretty much unknown as to how they chose that, but in doing a lot of the research, why they kept it seems a little bit up in the air as well. And that's where, the, to my mind, this becomes a shallow end story because this painting at the time was worth over, grab your seats, a hundred million dollars. Some people say $150 million. One of the most valuable pieces of art west of the Mississippi River. So the shallow end twist in doing this research to me seems to be that they realize this thing is hotter than nuclear waste. Everybody in the art world knows that this thing has been stolen literally minutes after they have driven away in their car with the stolen painting in the back seat. The art world is told, you know, every museum, every art dealer, uh, stuff like this goes around. Hey, if this pops up, this was just stolen from our museum. Your description of it being in the back seat just evokes this mental imagery of a hundred million dollar painting just kind of flopped in there yeah. with Cheetos and French fries that are on the floor from McDonald's. <laughs> maybe, maybe some unreturned DVDs from Blockbuster because <laughs> it was the mid eighties. Yeah, this, this was pre Netflix, so you're right. Yeah, you would have had to go back to Blockbuster to. To turn in your, actually, to turn in your VHS tape with the uh, Be Kind, Please Rewind (laughs) sticker. Mm -hmm. Remember that? I do. So that's why the painting never landed at an auction house or even slipped into the black market where it could have been eventually traced back. There were no fingerprints. The theft was assumed to be a contract job with the work stolen for a specific collector Mm. who wanted that. Right. But the uh, uh, founder of the FBI art crime team, a guy named Bob Whitman, said, these art thieves are the kind that feel like since they care about the piece, they're entitled to take it. Those are the most dangerous thieves and the hardest to capture. They steal these materials, they hide them, they keep them for their eyes only. And those things tend to go away for many years before they come back, if they ever come back. Well, that's exactly what the altars did. Because of their discretion, they were the art thieves next door that even their close friends and relatives didn't suspect. And the trail went cold as as early as 1987, just two years later, because the lack of evidence. Nevertheless, that painting, Woman Ochre, and that's spelled O-C-H-R-E, remained on the top, FBI's top 10 crime list. And by the way, I think it, it would be really cool to be able to say you're an FBI special agent, but how cool to, to work on, on stolen art. Oh, I know. Yeah. Because you're probably not going to get shot at by, you know, by shadowy art dealers in a a back alley. (laughs) I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty white collar, pretty sophisticated crime. It definitely is. And it's interesting that that beautiful masterpiece hung behind their bedroom door when all of Jerry's (laughs) 
shitty artwork, probably, you know, made with like macaroni and glue all over the house. Yeah, it was, I would call it an eclectic mix (laughs) of art. Yeah, that's kind. So so this painting stays on the FBI's top 10 crime list, but everything changes in 2017, just six years ago. And a call goes out to that museum in Tucson, and a curator, a woman named Olivia Miller, calls the police who call the FBI and one day later the painting is reunited with its proper custodians and van ocker the guy who you know went through the house and and pulled that painting and the vase and one other object said olivia starts to cry she was almost Mm. speechless because she understandably you know it's it's been more than than 30 years at this time she thinks this thing's never coming back. It's, it's gone forever. Now, not surprisingly, the painting was a little worse for the wear because paint had actually flaked off when Numbnuts, Jerry, rolled the thing up like a cheap, you know, uh, blood, sweat and tears poster at a concert. Nice David Clayton Thomas reference. That's for you kids with nothing to Google. Take take a t- throw that in your Google machine and see what pop what pops up. They they actually this couple had the temerity to try and retouch the painting themselves, which did not go well. And they actually stapled the front of the painting to what's called a stretcher, which is that wooden frame that uh, that you know you would attach a painting. To, right. Pardon that grammar. Right. All of which results in damages that are pretty major league. You need you need the big leagues to come in and fix something like that. So it the painting ends up. I just think this is so cool the way these art museums are are connected and and what they're willing to you know to do for each other to restore a piece of art. A guy named Ulrich Berkmeyer, who is the senior conservator of paintings at the Getty Museum here in Los Angeles, gets called in and he manages to do it. He manages painstakingly to restore it to what it to what it was. Now granted it's it's not exactly what it was, but it's cleaned up and it's restored to Getty Museum quality, art museum quality, mm. to to the point where it's it's uh, again put on display. And it actually um, was on display uh, at the Getty for a while. It got its own special viewing at the Getty, and I'm sure that was that was a thank you from the University of Arizona Art Museum. Like, right. hey. Appreciate your help. You know what? You want to hang on to it? Sure. We trust you. <laughs> and so it did. It was on display there and then ultimately uh, returned to the University of Arizona uh, Art Museum where it sits today. Uh, it, it just finished, in fact, a few months ago being on display. And as near as I can tell, uh, in talking to somebody there just this morning who is connected to the museum. Um, it, it is in storage. It's not on display right now, but probably will be again. Um, 
the, the it, it leads to an interesting question did any of the other art that the altar couple had was it stolen and the fbi actually thought well if they stole this maybe they've Hmm. stolen other things so they they actually came out to the house and they took pictures of anything of everything that they could find and they ultimately said we don't know Hmm. none of the things that we photograph uh come up as stolen but that doesn't mean it wasn't stolen as to how all this shakes out for the late Jerry Alter, said to be the mastermind behind this theft, Van Auker, the guy who owned the, the store in Silver City that discovered this, says, before all of this, his art was unsellable because essentially it was just crap. But he said, now it's considered the art thief's art. And it actually sort of became popular because this crappy art had been painted by the guy (laughs) who stole this piece of art worth $150 million. And he's dead and he can't reap any of those rewards. So Van Auker said there were 75 paintings of his. I sold 20 of them to a radio station owner in the Midwest for (laughs) $5,000. Not because they were any good, but because this guy was fascinated by the story. (laughs) He says, Jerry was arrogant and egotistical. He would think he finally got his due and wouldn't be surprised. If there is an afterlife, Jerry Alter is looking down and smugly chuckling. Yeah. He sounds like the kind of guy who thinks that high art is like uh, Thomas Kincaid placemat. Very well put. I got this from the New York Post as Central.com, Yahoo, and Wikipedia. It's interesting because I I have have often heard people who talk about... um, the kind of mindset of the person that goes into an art museum and says, boy, I really like that. I think I'm going to take home, take it home and hang it on my living room wall. <laughs> yeah. Right, you know, right. that mindset of, I really admire that. I think it should be mine. You know, they have prints of that in the gifts, in the gift shop and they're already pre-rolled. You don't have to worry about paint flaking off and <laughs> you're driving the, uh, the piece home right. to your crappy, uh, crappy living room in Cliff, New Mexico. Crazy. I'm not knocking Cliff, New Mexico. I'm knocking art thieves. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for Mexican food that satisfies your craving but won't break the bank? Welcome to El Dumpo. 
We keep prices low by doing things you probably wouldn't notice anyway. Our food is mostly fresh. Sure, a few things like our chicken, pork, and beef are bought in back alleys in the middle of the night. But our chef is a master at disguising things like mold on rancid meats. Other restaurants wash their silverware plates and glasses in hot water with plenty of soap. But at El Dumpo, a quick rinse of a paper towel ought to do it. In the seven years we've been open, we've only been shut down by the health department eight times. That's just over once a year. All this means savings for you because our average entree is just five dollars and when you're feeding a family of four for 20 bucks who cares about a few germs el dumpo the mexican restaurant that saves you money even if it might make you sick el dumpo just off interstate four in orlando so the name el dumpo is actually inspired by a real mexican restaurant (laughs) in phoenix that i'm not going to name because I don't want this to get sued, right, but yeah. uh, I don't want this podcast to get sued. But it's actually a great restaurant. It's a little run down, and my sister and a friend of hers nicknamed it El Dumpo because <laughs> its proper name was a little long and slightly pretentious. But anyway, now I'm now I'm all hungry for Mexican food and stuff. Yeah, that happens. Nice, nice going, Linz. <laughs> before I uh, before I read the email this week, uh, lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com, we had a listener named Michelle who is, as far as I know, our first subscriber from Cape Town, South Africa. Oh. How cool is that? That's great. Michelle uh, wrote a really, really good long email, but it's so long that I... Uh, I've already I've already run out of time, so I may try and come back to it. But I just wanted Michelle to know, Michelle, your story is amazing, and you should really be a writer. Uh, also, a another woman named Rachel, uh, who wrote about attending uh, a wedding reception in a castle in West Ireland that uh, made me gag a few times in reading it. And I thought, it's funny as hell, but I, I, can't, I can't read that because I don't want our listeners to gag too. So instead, I'm reading one from a listener in Australia, a gentleman named Gerald, who says, Hey there, guys, listener from the very beginning, a Kiwi boy based in Australia. I was listening to episode 66 and got caught up in the Dunkin' Donuts Krispy Kreme chat. I run all the manufacturing for Krispy Kreme around Australia and New Zealand. Yes, it's a every bit sweet, delicious, and downrightly, de- downright deadly as you think it would be. I have to run like Forrest Gump to have any hope of being able to keep fitting into my jeans. <laughs> Man, I can relate to that. I have to say, turning up anywhere I go with a couple of dozen... Krispy Kreme in boxes, I may as well be turning up and handing out $100 bills, such as the reception I get. It may as well be currency. I feel that way here in Southern California about In-N-Out Burger. Anybody who shows up with a box of In-N-Out Burgers, you might as well be handing out $100 bills. Indeed. Gerald says, I can vouch for that story about the cops pulling the pin on the drive through the publicity stunt. I've heard it several times from my stateside, stateside colleagues. This was a story, JG, you remember me telling about opening a Krispy Kreme in Long Beach where the Long Beach police were going to do a publicity photo right. on the opening day because Krispy Kreme was right next door to the police station. 
We tend to have our smaller production shops and outlets based out of a bigger name shopping mall chain that you'll know. This comes with a benefit of security detail, although more than once we've had to sadly tell a very disappointed mall cop that even their badge won't get them freebies. <laughs> we'll always give them a hefty discount, though. Thank you for your service, as always. I've tried to take photos on the occasion the police are buying coffee and donuts. Unfortunately, each time I'm asked politely, please don't take my photo. It looks a bit too cliche. <laughs> Keep up the great work, guys. I'll score you better than me mediocre unlike the person you mentioned earlier in the episode cheers jt thank you jt from australia wow this was a very international we got we got australia we got ireland and we got cape town plus we have connections high up in the Krispy cream corporation so makes makes me want to go to australia and how many see how many free donuts you and i could score just don't wear a uniform it looks too cliche lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com you're in the shallow end with Schnapley and Toth. JG, I think you're up. Well, in the grand theater of the internet, uh, where wisdom and foolishness collide in a spectacular display of human creativity, there exists I love this story already. a sacred art form known as posting the stupidest thing ever. It's as if our collective <laughs> IQ takes a vacation when we log on. And I think also, Linz, you know, it's like there's a certain amount of anonymity. And so maybe people say things they normally would not say to other people face to face. But also they say things that that's very true that they they don't really think through. And then later they go, hmm, maybe I should have. Maybe I shouldn't have said yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. There are epic autocorrect fails that transform things like I'll be there in five minutes into I'll be there in five llamas. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> I'll be there in five llamas. We're going to look at some of the stupidest things that people have posted online. And uh, I had no shortage of sources. Uh, Board Panda curated quite a collection here. Uh, I'm going to start with them. <laughs> uh, here's, here's a picture of some fresh baked goods that somebody created. Sounds good so far. Yeah, except that uh, they wrote, they, <laughs> I just made me some synonym buns. <laughs> I'm wondering if they're just like the ones grammar used to make. Synonym buns. Synonym buns. <laughs> oh, I love that. Screw Mexican food. Now I want cinnamon buns. Or synonym buns. Or synonym buns. Even better. Mm -hmm. Somebody posted, if you don't know the difference between there, T-H-E-R-E, there, T-H-E-I-R, and there, T-H-E-Y, apostrophe R-E, you're an idiot. And they spelt your Y-O-U-R. So nice. that's awkward. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's priceless. Yeah, that, I love that's that. That's instant karma right there. You're an idiot. At the end of the day, we are all human beings. B-E-A-N-S. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody quoted. Truer words. And together we will rice. <laughs> <laughs> No, okay, fine, you know, you you make a linguistic error or your spelling is off or your grammar's not that great. Yeah. Yeah. But then there's just plain stupid. There was a solar eclipse party. Uh, it was a free event. It was being advertised online. Free event, solar eclipse party. 
August 21st. I'm not sure what, what year this was. I guess we could probably look it up, but I don't want to. Um, <laughs> somebody posted underneath, most kids go back to school that day. Can it be moved to the weekend? <laughs> <laughs> this lady wanted oh, to reschedule the sun. That's genius. <laughs> I, I, and I wonder if somebody wrote her back. Well, we'll look into it. <laughs> you know, that reminds me of another Australian solar eclipse story from, I'm going to say, the early 1990s. And Keith Morrison went from NBC News, went to cover it. And it was a big kabuki deal. I mean, it was one of those full total solar yeah, eclipse right. where, you know, broad day, like, like 12 noon, it's pitch dark. You're going to have to tell this story in Keith Morrison's voice now. Well, I, I guess I could for this one sentence, JG. <laughs> he, uh, he was so smart because he said uh, the close of the package was something like, there were all kinds of people in the park. There were school children, there were scientists, even this band of aborigines who performed a sacred dance to bring back the sun. And guess what? It worked. <laughs> Keith Morrison, NBC News, Sydney, Australia. That's beautiful. You do a great Keith Morrison. That was just priceless because as he said it worked, they, you know, they cut to video of the sun yeah. starting to peek back out and I thought that's genius. That's perfect. That's perfect. Way to go. Here's a question somebody uh, somebody posted. Why do the women never have to take a DNA test to see if it's their child? <laughs> and one of the responses was, <laughs> I never thought about that. <laughs> I have no hope for humans anymore. How sexist. <laughs> Why do they make only men? Oh, jeez. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Here's an interesting one. If vaccines were actually healthy, you could put it on a spoon and eat it. Try it. You'll die. <laughs> and the response was, if broccoli was actually healthy, you could put it in a syringe and inject it into your bloodstream. <laughs> Try, it. Try it. You'll, you'll die. die. Oh, man. And then somebody wanted to know, who was the first person that liked that comment? <laughs> then there was uh, somebody posted a joke and uh, it started out a priest, a minister and a rabbi walk into a bar, but they um, <laughs> they didn't put rabbi. They, I guess, autocorrect said rabbit. And so Stephen King actually commented, a priest, a minister, and a rabbit walk into a bar. The rabbit says, I think I'm a typo. That's great. Only Stephen King, right? Yeah, it's the Stephen King, yeah. You've met him, met him or talked to him? Several times, yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. I just think that is that is such an obscure, cool thing to be able to say with a straight face. Yeah, I used to live a few doors down from... Stephen King, I would run into him from time to yeah. time. Often at the bank, he would be making deposits. Did he? Did he come in with like a giant sack load <laughs> yep. with a big dollar, thousand bill. dollar bills, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hoisted up onto the uh -huh. counter? Yeah, there you go. No, you. This is just today's. 
I'll be back tomorrow. This is just today's royalties. You would see him everywhere. He he walks around the the city of Bangor, Maine, a lot. Whitney Bangor is where he lived, and that's where Cat and I lived for years and years and years. And um, yeah, you'd just see him like, if there was like a music festival on the waterfront. Yeah, you'd see him wandering around down there. And everybody leaves him alone. Nobody comes up. I was just going to say, did people treat him like a rock star nope. or, or hound him for autographs nope. or photos? They left him yeah. alone. Yeah, the only people that ever bothered cool. him were maybe tourists. But uh, even then, it, it happened infrequently. But that's why he likes likes to live there is because people in Maine are, are kind of stoic and they keep to themselves. Sure. And, and you know, you see Stephen King and it's like, yeah, well, there's Stephen King and, and nobody goes up and bothers him. A couple of times I got into a conversation with him um, about a band that was playing or, or something like that. Or I would see him and I would nod and say, hi, Steve. And he would nod and, 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 and wave back. He's not rude. Um, but but yeah. he, he appreciates the fact that people don't bother him. He's a good guy. You know what's what's cool about that? When you said, I, I said, I would say, hi, Steve. The last time I said, hi, Steve, to a quote-unquote celebrity was at the Arizona Inn in Tucson. And Steve Kerr, Steve Kerr. Was, staying at the, was staying at the Arizona Inn. And I, of course, immediately realized who it was, but didn't want to, you know, didn't want to be a jerk. Right. Uh, and so I just said, hi, Steve. And he kind of nodded like, hey. Yeah. And uh, for anybody who's not sure who Steve Kerr is, it's easier for you to Google. Yeah. Yeah. It's spelled K-E-R-R. He, uh, when he was playing basketball for Cleveland and I was living in Orlando, of course, Steve played for the University of Arizona basketball team and was a superstar there. And uh, was kind of adopted by the city of Tucson oh, yeah. when his uh, father when his was father was assassinated. assassinated. Yeah, and Steve was on my show a number of times, and we had a, a, a friendly relationship. But he he gets drafted into the NBA, and I get uh, transferred to Orlando to do my radio show there. But he comes into town with the Cleveland team to play um, Orlando, Magic. yeah, Orlando Magic, the inaugural season, and. Um, shoot around halftime he's he's come out he's shooting around and security was lax in those days so i wandered down to the edge right. of the floor and i yelled steve right. kerr <laughs> and he stopped and he came over and he goes what the hell are you doing here oh that's funny that's he's just cool. the nicest guy nicest guy and it's kind of sad because his career went nowhere, right? <laughs> yeah. How many? He won five <laughs> NBA championship rings as a player, and how many as a coach for Golden State? I've uh, lost track. I, I don't even know. But I love anytime Golden State is is on TV because to to look at that guy and see what he did, not only with his life, yeah. uh, after he lost his dad, but his career and to what he has become. Yeah. Um, and just as as you know, a graduate of the University of Arizona, you think, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, bear down, go Wildcats. Steve Kerr is a genuinely nice guy. Anyway, I don't know how we got on that tangent. Um, here's a lady who says she hates grapes; they disgust her. And then <laughs> a woman want <laughs> she a woman wanted to know what they be saying. <laughs> uh-huh. I was just going to say, don't you hate when your fruit talks about you behind oh, your back? Oh, God, it's just... Oh, yeah, look, yeah. look, here's Lindsay again. Oh, God. So thin-skinned. 
Um, then there's this one. Um, this hashtag Pride Month. The only pride I need is my pride in my Bible and the red, white, and blue stripes. And then posted probably 25 little flag emojis, but uh, they aren't the U.S. They're the flag of Libya, which resembles okay. resembles the U.S. flag. All yeah, right. Yeah. So. America, baby. America. America. This woman was, uh, she had a legitimate question. Uh, is there any sort of book subscription for kids that exists? where you order books and once you read them you return them and get more um and somebody pointed out that yeah it's called a library i was gonna say isn't that what a library is (laughs) it kind of has been since benjamin franklin came up with the idea and we'll close with this uh uh post that is in all caps of course um (laughs) a guy from sweden writes people are effing idiots My neighbor's kid just tried to tell me that bats are mammals. Mammals don't fly. We walk and are confined to the ground. No wonder my family in Sweden thinks you Americans are all so dumb. You all truly need to educate your kids better. Bats are birds. (laughs) And we know that birds aren't real. Birds aren't real. (laughs) Uh, Follow-up comment was, Who's going to break the news to him about dolphins? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, people are dumb, and uh, oftentimes <sighs> they advertise it on their own. Isn't it great when somebody does that for you oh and you don't God. even have to do the work? No, it's great. Board Panda curated that uh, that list. I also pulled a few from demilked.com, and as I changed screens to their their site uh this post popped up it's a picture of a squirrel says oh my god so i don't like dolphins anymore squirrels are my new favorite reptile they're so cute so apparently there is some confusion about reptiles mammals and it's a universal thing i wouldn't have called a squirrel a reptile but you know jg i majored in communications so (laughs) Who am I to say I'm smart? Yeah, you know, my dad has a PhD in advanced mathematics. My mom had her uh, master's degree in sociology. My my little sister, uh, she's got a master's from Stanford in clinical co- uh, psychology. And um, I'm reading stupid quotes from the Internet on a podcast. So, <laughs> Yeah, but you got to hang out with Stephen King. I did, yeah, so, yeah, uh, you know. yep, I did. I did indeed. Maybe it, maybe it all washes, right? <laughs> well, we appreciate you guys hanging out with us, as always. And um, our email address is lifeguard, lifeguard at com. Always love to hear your stories. Maybe next week we can read the long one that, uh, that you were talking about that came from... Uh, South Africa. Yeah, maybe if I don't yammer so much at the beginning of the uh, podcast, <laughs> right. I can I can get uh, I can get back into that and and read the whole thing. <laughs> well, we look forward. Uh, to it. We do appreciate you uh, listening as always, and uh, as JG said, as we get closer to October sixteenth, we'll give you uh, more information about from beneath the Hollywood sign. But um, we think you're gonna we really think you're gonna love it. Yeah, we certainly cats out of the bag. We certainly hope so. And as always, 
Our advice, our closing advice to you is to make good choices. Your life might depend on it. So concludes another episode of The Shallow End with Schnebly and Toff. We thank you for listening. Oh, be a dear, would you? Please subscribe to this podcast, give these boys a five-star rating, and think of something nice to say, even if you have to make something up. And visit us online at shallowendpodcast.com. Okay, gotta go.